Hi, welcome to The Thing About Aging. Today we're here with the stories from three women about the death of their spouse and partner. Kat Gilliam Cunningham has a Master's in Transformational Psychology. She's been involved for more than 30 years with playback theatre at prisons and public schools and for groups around the world. She founded Beloved Becoming with her husband, John, which taught nonviolent communication internationally. Then in 2020, her husband, John, died from cancer and her mother died three weeks later. Then Kat got COVID-19. Kat's blog is on medium.com and she will be offering couples therapy again soon. Billy Best after decades in high-tech marketing, published her first book in 2020 entitled How I Made a Huge Mess of My Life or Couples Therapy with a Dead Man. She met her husband Chet when they were 22 and working for a rock band. Then in 2008, Chet was diagnosed with lung cancer and while he was in hospice, Billy discovered his secret. He died six months later. Her blog is at billybest.com and it's called Beyond 60, Loving Life, staying relevant. Judith Boyd is a style influencer on social media, where she's known as Style Crone, with more than 50,000 followers on Instagram. For most of her career, she was an emergency psychiatric nurse, also co-owned a hat shop in the 80s and sold vintage clothes in the 90s. In 2005, Nelson, her husband, was diagnosed with a rare cancer, and after years of treatments, he transitioned in 2011. Her blog about this experience, healing, and fashion is at stylecrone.com. Hi, this is Sharon Salzgiver. Welcome back to The Thing About Aging. Today we're talking with Kat Gilliam Cunningham, Billy Best, and Judith Boyd. They're all presents on the internet and bloggers, and today our topic is about working through grief with the loss of a spouse or partner. Thank you ladies so much for joining us here. Glad to be here. Kat, why don't you start, give us a little introduction to who Kat is. That one thing I know now that I didn't know 10 years ago is that I don't know much. <laughs> so I'm really appreciating living more with a state of wonder. And I think going through the illness with John and uh, the hospice care that I provided for him the last three months of his life is what cracked open that knowing of not knowing mm -hmm. and I'm more comfortable with it. Um, I've spent 30 plus years doing playback theater, which is an improvisational form of theater that celebrates our personal story. So people share personal stories. It's done all over the world and it's been done for more than 30 years. And there's a, a troupe of improvisational actors and musicians. And when the story is being gathered, the conductor says, let's watch, and turns it over to the actors. And that practice, probably more than anything, has informed how I live and what I'm comfortable with. Um, there's agreements in improv. So improv isn't just chaos. There's agreements. And the agreements are that we make each other look brilliant, that we say yes and to everything. We don't block offers because everything mm -hmm. in life is an offer. Um, notice more, move. And I think that those have really penetrated and saturated me in a way that it's my most comfortable way to live is in an emergent fashion. Mm -hmm. And the work that John and I did in the world was all about staying clear that we're always in the process of becoming. We aren't rocks. We haven't become. Mm -hmm. We're becoming. And 
So the deep listening, that playback required really worked well with the deep listening, that compassionate communication, which is also really informed, I think, who I am at this point. Feeling uh, this sort of motto of mine, which is there are no strangers. Once we've really deeply listened to another person's story, there is no way that we cannot love them. Mm. And, and also, we don't feel them as a stranger. They become part of our human family. Mm, gorgeous. Okay. Thank you. So, Billy, best? Well, thank you, uh, Sharon, for this focus on uh, a time in our lives when I think we're experiencing a renaissance in our creativity and our thinking, and we're finding a new level of independence that we didn't have when we were younger. My husband died in 2009, and I wrote a book about it. Our marriage um, was troubled, and those troubles really came to light in a big way in the last few months of his life. And that was shocking to me because I was oblivious. I was very much into my own success, my own passions, and uh, I had really let go of my marriage. Uh, So in the last literally month of my husband's life, we found each other again. And then it took me years to process it, but I've also found myself again. My husband was a musician and a performer, and he chose to approach his death as a sort of performance art. He was very Mm -hmm. controlling about the way he wanted events to proceed. He had seen his father years earlier die in hospice under the care of family members who could not agree on things like medication, uh, the implications of death, the meaning of death, whether death is a punishment for the life you've led, Mm. whether being in pain during death is uh, what you deserve for the life you live. So we watched this family, his family, have these very profound philosophical arguments in real time while this man was dying in a hospital bed in the dining room. And when my husband got his diagnosis, the first thing he said was, I'm going to be a role model I do not want to die the way my father died. One of the most important things he said to me was, I think we should plan my death the way we planned our wedding, because it's that important. And so he commenced the plan. And, you know, he chose to be wrapped in linens Mm -hmm. because his uh, spiritual uh, role models uh, had been naked, wrapped in, you know, shrouds. He chose uh, not to be embalmed. He chose not to be buried. He asked me to keep his body at home with me until it went to the crematory. He asked that his body only be handled by people who loved him in life and that he not be put in cold storage. Uh, These These things were pretty radical in 2009. You know, green death was kind of a fringe idea back then. It's much more popular now. I was just following instructions, and I was glad to do it. I loved this man. We were together for 32 years. I believed he was my soulmate. 
the one complication that we hadn't foreseen was that he died on a Friday of Martin Luther King Jr. Day holiday weekend. Mm -hmm. Everything was closed. And in order to carry out his instructions, I had to keep his body at home with me for five days. And that experience of having a corpse in the house for five days, the body of a man I dearly loved, mm -hmm. that I think was probably one of the most profound experiences of my life. Mm. It was, it forever changed me as a person, my view of life and death, my spiritual connections, my understanding of uh, the union of birth and death. And um, that's why I had to write about it. I also have a blog at um, billybest.com, which my name is Billy Best. And um, I think I'll be writing about this forever because uh, it just... It's still all inside me. Yeah. Thank you, Billy. Judith Boyd, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for bringing us together around a common experience. Um, my husband, Nelson, died April 20th of 2011. And he was diagnosed with a very rare cancer in um, February of 2005. And he was given a death sentence immediately, and I, uh, I'm a nurse myself and was working for the organization which was providing his care. And I, I could not accept uh, that he was, within two weeks, given a diagnosis that um, they, the health care providers had determined that he should be um, in palliative care, which... I knew that that meant that he was to die within a year, or that would be the prediction. And uh, through a series of events, kind of following a thread, I found a cancer guide uh, that lived in New York, and he was the only person that I was communicating with around my husband's diagnosis that gave me hope. Um, he sent us to an integra integrative oncologist in Chicago uh, where we consulted around lifestyle choices and um, having to do with nutrition and exercise and mindfulness um, lifestyle choices that we could add to what we were already doing. We both lived a very healthy lifestyle and also um, informed us that the, ex the international expert on his diagnosis was in Nashville. So Nelson then received treatment here in Denver, but then when his tumor shrank, we went to live in Nashville for two, two months in what we called the um, Cancer Hotel. It was a, hmm. a hub was provided by the American Cancer Society for people that were receiving treatment in um, Nashville was kind of, of a center of uh, cancer treatment in that part of the country. And because Nelson was feeling pretty good during the time that we were there, we lived our life as much as we could possibly live our lives um, as we would have if we were in Denver and, and didn't have the structure of um, what we 
usually did here in Denver. And so uh, Denver, uh, Nashville is um, a music city, and um, my husband was African American, and so we sought out um, music that we loved, and we saw John Legend, if you know who he is, for eight dollars. Oh wow! Um, and so we really, and I went to estate sales, which is what I love to do, and. Uh, so what happened after that experience is that Nelson had a two-and-a-half-year remission, which nobody could believe. And even though we had many scares during that period of time, um, and it was also kind of like cancer was in the background, and then um, the, the cancer did come back in, <clears throat> excuse me, in 2008, and at that point, he remained um, within the healthcare system receiving chemotherapy until in February, uh, before he died in April, he no longer wanted to um, receive chemotherapy more damaging than the disease at that point. However, um, in July of 2010, which was what turned out to be nine months before he died, uh, I decided, and with his um, support, to start a style blog. And I didn't know anything about blogging. I, I don't know if you know about it, and style, which is um, Ari Seth Cohen, who... Um, at that point had been blogging for two years and it really gave me the courage to start because he was featuring women um, that he found on the streets and men but mostly women on the streets of New York who um, were over 60 years old and dressed up and had a very vibrant life and for many years even though I worked in healthcare and I worked in mental health um, I would dress up before I went to work and Always, um, I quit a job at one point because they wouldn't allow me to wear hats to work. And I was like, oh, I'm over that. <laughs> I found another job, and they supported my wearing of hats and <laughs> our organization. And uh, they wrote the dress code that I could then continue to wear hats. I, mm -hmm. I have no idea how that happened, but it fit for me. Nobody at that time was blogging about style and cancer caregiving and then style and death, style and grief, and then style and what I perceived to be my reinvention. Nelson was a healing force in my life. I, I really did not know how I could possibly survive without him. And it was like he gave me the gift of support of my blog. He was my first photographer. We had a regular series on the blog, which was what to wear to chemo, and I would get dressed up, and we, in the exam room, he would take my photo. It was a secret. Nobody knew we were doing this. And then I would accompany him to the chemo cafe, and I would blog about our experiences. And because I worked in mental health, I was used to and very familiar with um, talking with my clients about what was happening in their lives and I usually worked in the area of crisis and emergency so um, I felt like um, I could then 
tune into my own feelings and talk about what was going on in my life and my life with Nelson. And it was one of the most important coping mechanisms that I had to go through the experience of the end of his life. And then, uh, Billy, as you talked about a green death, um, one of my friends was working for uh, an organization in Boulder, which was Natural Transitions, and she was a a death midwife. Uh, She had worked as a birthing midwife earlier in her life, but before Nelson died, uh, we talked together about how he wanted his death to be, and um, the memorial service, we planned it together. My friend, who was the death midwife, appeared after his death, and we had everything that we had decided rolled out. Natural Transitions had a very sturdy cardboard box that my friends who are artists decorated it. Uh, We placed him in the cardboard box. We had visitors start appearing at 10 in the morning with food and wine and candles, and we played his music, and my daughter was able to sit right beside him and hold his hand, and it was really the most intimate um, experience of my life Mm. from the that he left his body and his spirit was no longer available, but that we had his presence for about 24 hours. And then um, Hmm. we um, rushed around finding objects to put in in the box, and then the crematorium arrived to transport him to the crematorium, and we did not touch any of the um, traditional what would you say, death experiences of his being embalmed or um, any services that were provided um, under the standard practices. And then I had six weeks to prepare for his service. I poured my entire heart into preparing for that. My blog, kind of a lifesaver, it got me off of the couch and put together an outfit, which some may see as a, super, a superficial way of living my life. However, it's it's my art form. It's like some people paint, some people um, garden. I happen to um, express myself creatively through my outfits. I'm an activist in the area of climate change and racial justice. So I guess you would say that's my story. Here I am um, nine and a half years later, continuing to evolve, even during a pandemic. And I carry Nelson with me because this is the project that we started together. And so he's continuing to be a part of what I do every day. Beautiful. Thank you. Kat, what was your experience of John's passing, his illness, and his death? So I met John in 2010. I had been married twice. He had also been married twice. We were both at a restorative circle training. We were both doing very similar work in the world. In fact, we were both part of an organization in Seattle called Freedom Project, which brought Marshall Rosenberg's compassionate communication into the prisons. But somehow, through all of this intersection intersection of our lives we had never met so I walked up to him and said hi my name is Kat Gilliam I think we're supposed to know each other 
So we did uh, an improvisational piece right before we did our wedding ceremony. Mm-hmm. And in that improvisational piece, when I got to sharing that that's how I introduced myself to John, he stopped. He looked out at the group of people that were there to witness our wedding. He said, that's not what she said. And I'm looking at him like, oh, God, what's he going to say? <laughs> he said, well, she said, hi. My name's Kat Gilliam. I fall in love with everyone, and you're next. (laughs) (laughs) And the thing, uh, it was something I loved dearly and appreciated about my husband was that he saw who I was, and he not only loved it and appreciated it, but he supported it, and he elevated me. And I feel like I am such a better person for having had the 10 years with him that I had. So I was with John from 2010 to 2020. He died February 25th, 2020. So much more recently, yes, mm-hmm. Billy and and Judith's husbands. John was very much almost looking forward to the next part of the adventure. Being an anthroposophist, he really believed that it was the death of the physical body and he was being born into the spiritual world. I will say so that in the last month of our life together, we did some very deep personal work together, which is, Billy, I could relate to that with you. We uh, got a book called Eight Dates, Conversations for a Lifetime of Love, and we started going through it. We did the first date, and then we did the date around sex, because he knew we weren't going to get through all eight of them, and he let me pick the next one. (laughs) We had an amazing house on Orcas Island for three months. Kind people who rented to us knowing that John was going to be hospice cared and would die in that house. Mm. Friends came from all over the world and family, and it was a really rich December, January, and February. It was just, it, it was amazing. And there was also some trauma for me, I think, involved with it because Uh, Billy, as you pointed to, families wondering about meds and all of that, working with hospice, though on the one side of the coin, I very much appreciated hospice's support. On the other side of it, it's actually resting squarely on your shoulders to know how to do everything and to do it right. And Hmm. it's an amazingly intense experience. For me, I have three grown children, even more of a sense of responsibility than a newborn baby did I feel for this man's life was in my hands in a way and the end of his life. Um, It was also very peaceful. Uh, It was, it was everything, you know, there was uh, every aspect of, of the experience was like an adventure. You just never know every day. In the last couple of weeks, John would wake up and say, well, what's going to happen today? Mm. Now, what's the plan? Mm. <laughs> I love that. And uh, we also did a three-day wake for him. A local person carved a coffin for him out of a huge hemlock driftwood, wow. which was so perfect because John and I had been gypsies together for 10 years. So to have his coffin be out of a piece of driftwood just oh, seemed like the most perfect, perfect metaphor. Yeah. We buried him also in a shroud that his daughter, who lives there on Orcus and I, embroidered in the most eclectic, funky, 
hippie uh, cemetery on Orcas Island. Taking care of the body for three days, I can relate to everything that you both said and um, the profundity of the experience. Yeah, I'm definitely forever changed. And I had been waiting to have John contact me because we lived in each other's pockets, as they say in Australia. We worked together, we lived together, we played together, we biked together, we swam across the lake together. We were very much a couple. And it was only about two months ago that I'm in the middle of a Target doing a shop for my daughter, and I have the green stone around my neck that I've worn for 10 years. We gave them to each other when we were in New Zealand as our an engagement necklace. And I'm not thinking about John. I'm doing this shop, and he says to me, sweetheart, it's time to take off the necklace. <laughs> and I grab the necklace, and I stop dead in my tracks and I start to sob in the middle of Target. But why? This is my touchstone. I, I'm going to feel naked without this. What are you talking about? And I'm also thinking, really? You had to wait to talk to me in the middle of Target? <laughs> you know, I'm meditating every morning waiting for you, but no, you have to do it now. <laughs> I finish the shop and I get back in the car. I take the necklace off and I'm holding it. And he says, Use it like a pendulum so I can speak to you. Wow. So I go to my next stop to pick up a coffee for my daughter, and I'm laughing to myself, okay, you can talk to me in Target. You can answer some questions here in Starbucks. <laughs> I'm, I'm holding this like a pendulum, and the few things that I really wanted to know, I said, sweetheart, are you at peace? And very slowly, it started to move and swing, yes. Mm. And again, I just broke down because I just needed to know that. And there were a few things that happened that last 24 hours that I wished I could have done differently. And so I just needed to know that he wasn't in any way upset or disappointed. And I asked him that, and it swung no. And mm -hmm. then he said to me, you fall in love with everyone. Who's next? Oh. He said, don't hold back. You go forward. No, so, it was really, it's, it's, you know, very recent. Yeah. And for some people, it would be like, well, it's way too soon. But for me, I've spent the last 34 years in a primary relationship. I'm like a fish out of water, although I feel quite at ease with my aloneness. So I feel very open to who's next. And Kat, for you to be grieving during the pandemic is, I would think, really difficult for from a support Well, structure. just to also share, my mom died in October. So four months before John, I did the same thing for my mom. Mm -hmm. So it was a double whammy. And then I got COVID in March. Huh. Um, however, that was a, a, a blessing, actually, because I then tested negative and quite high antibody count. And so I think a combination of because I had already had it and because my friends probably felt so sorry for me and wanted to give me comfort that everywhere I went, I was literally welcomed with open arms. I have not had a typical COVID experience. I've had a huge amount of support 
in this grieving process. So, I mean, I'm not happy you got COVID, but that was kind of your golden ticket almost. It yeah. was my golden ticket, yeah. and I am deeply appreciative of it. Mm, beautiful. Thank you. Oh, all of you. I, I admire and honor all of you because when I was in treatment for cancer, I always said that I, I believed it was harder on my support person because they had the stress, they had the care, they had the worry. I just kind of went and just did the next thing that I had to do. Whereas my support person was just carrying all of this other. And um, and you all were also dealing with the loss of a spouse and and all of that. And so I'm wondering what has been the emotion through the grief? You know, what other emotions and has that changed over time? Well. I would say that grief evolves and evolves with time for certain, but also evolves with our experience. I chose to live alone in the house where my husband died for seven years because it was our farm and farming was my passion. Uh, I had cows and sheep and goats and chickens and a dog and a cat. And these creatures were depending on me every day. Farm work is continuous, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, every day, all day, all year. So I had an obligation beyond myself that was my choosing. And it kept me from disappearing into my grief. There was quite a lot going on emotionally in my husband's death. I had to reconcile the failure of our marriage and and not having the time to reconcile that and having to just find ways mentally to accept where things had ended. So did you not process it then because you were so busy with it and kind of distracted by the farm? It was a lot to process all at once. Mm -hmm. And uh, like Kat, my mother died uh, nine days after my husband. And um, so uh, same uh, funeral home, same funeral director, same hearse, same crematory, nine days later. And she could not be an active, uh, present, mentally present participant. She died in a nursing home. She was not aware at all of the process that her body was in and left me with um, coping with it alone and making all of the decisions and, you know, standing there in the crematory uh, feeling uh, very dissatisfied, frankly, mm-hmm. with um, how uh, inauspicious her death was and so I think that immediate contrast that I had caused me to really appreciate um, the bravery of my husband and the uh, intellectual sense of adventure uh, as as it seems like we all three had uh, a husband who was intellectually curious about his own end and saw it as some kind of um, energetic continuation. And you might choose different words to explain that and tell a different story about how that evolved. But 
the idea is similar that this person who was about to die felt intuitively that this was the beginning of something else, not simply an end. Mm-hmm. And that that made my husband's death a celebration of his life and uh, an adventure for both of us. I think um, the grieving, you know, each of us experienced grieving in a very unique way that's particular to our life circumstances and particular to our emotional evolution. And uh, it took me a very, very long time to separate myself as an individual from those experiences. And I think, in large part, it was because I chose to stay in the house and stay in the actual physical circumstances. Mm -hmm. Now that I'm out of them, I have moved uh, to a very different place and living in very different circumstances. And now I feel I can reflect back on that almost as though it happened to another woman because that's Mm -hmm. how different I feel today. Mm Yeah, that's so interesting, Billy, because one of the things I've often said to people over the last eight and a half months is that most people in my age group have lived in their home for a long time with their partners. And so when their partners die, they still have that container, if you will, of a life that they had together. But because John and I were such gypsies and we just... We moved 12 times in the 10 years that we were together. One of the years when we were working in Australia, people would host us. And and so I felt like John was my home. Mm -hmm. We were home for each other. He was my North Star. I was his North Star. So when he passed, the, the first three months for me, I just felt as if I was suddenly like one of those uh, dandelions. You blow and it just flows apart and I just felt like that and I wondered, now what? Yeah. Um, And during that period of time was my deepest grieving and as much I was grieving for the loss of sense of home and belonging that I experienced with my husband and uh, I am now in a situation where I'm very intertwined with my youngest daughter's life and her three daughters, my granddaughters. And that has provided an emotional anchor that has allowed me to uh, unfold the rest of the grieving, which is really more specific to just missing John's bright physical presence in my life. And I will say that after he visited me and I was very clear that he was at peace and he was not in any way disappointed with what had or hadn't happened, I do feel released in a way that almost seems impossible to have this sense of relief so soon and release. But I'm, I'm so grateful for the fact that I really cry all my tears and laugh all my laughter and just go for it because it feels yeah I'm just so curious about what's next well Kat I, I 
I remember the first year following Nelson's death, and you are at such a different point than uh, for Billy and myself. It, it was such an intense year with all the first anniversaries and uh, all that comes with getting to the end of the first year. And so I feel very... Um, what you're talking about is very much a reminder of what I experienced. I, I didn't experience um, communicating with Nelson in the way that you describe, um, but I, I, I did have um, communications in a different way, and I still do. But um, I just wanted to express my condolences for where you are right now. And... Um, know that it's a painful time and as you describe sometimes a joyful time and judith in a blog that you wrote a year or two after nelson passed you said oh it was in the silver jacket blog oh i remember the silver jacket yeah and you said um and you realize that nelson's transition does not include the loss of self and i assumed you meant yourself because you yeah. were so tied together, uh, not tied, but connected. Yes, we were very connected, like the wisteria in the back garden. Mm. Although we had lives, um, we had a, a, an intense and intimate closeness that um, will never, I don't expect that to happen again in my life, but I, I treasure it, and I'm at I'm a different age now than I was when I met Nelson. I met Nelson in 1977. Uh, in my 30s, he was my second um, marriage, and now I'm 77. I do have a boyfriend now, but it's a much different experience, and I don't um, choose to live with anyone again. I can't say never about anything because I've discovered that over the years. But um, I... I'm living in the home that Nelson and I lived in together. This is the sanctuary. Every room upstairs is a closet. And um, once I realized that he wasn't coming back, then I felt it was important to make it exactly how I wanted it to be in living alone in this space. But um, I, I did read something during the first year of um, grieving that that when you're when you have a part that you feel so connected to that when that partner is no longer there it's almost like an amputation i did blog about that it feels like the loss of a limb or the loss of an eye now i'm having a hard time describing it but when the thing about blogging for me is that i write exactly how i felt on the blog's dashboard and it would just pour out of me and then you can go back and edit it so you can actually publish it but I can remember after reading this piece about an amputation how that was exactly how it felt changed how um you know I was not no longer um I had my uh, I had my feet in two different cultures and so that changed as well and that was that has been a big loss for me because I learned so much from him 
And um, I remember his talking about, and when we would read books and, and discuss them, about how people of cult think about, in Nelson's case, uh, about race every single day. And I think about race every day. And that comes from living with Nelson for over 30 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So then when you lost Nelson, how did you come to terms with that? And has your relationship with Nelson continued to develop after he, his passing? Oh, it, it, it has continued to develop, and I ask him questions. And I don't know if the two of you, Billy and Kat, have a similar <laughs> thing going on. But, yes, I do. Um, it's all my internal conversation and, um, and continuing to read and continuing to educate myself now. Um, especially during this time of uh, more racial awareness in our country. I did on the farm have a strong connection with Chet's way of thinking. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of the things that was difficult in our marriage was that we each took a very different approach to the farm. It was a collaborative project, but uh, we had very different ideas. And as a result... We fought about it. I took it on as a career. For him, it was a hobby he could walk away from any time. So we had very different levels of attachment to it. After he was gone and I was able to farm by myself, and I have to say, this is a, this is kind of what I would call the fun part of the book. I was a, uh, there were no checks and balances in my life, right? I could do whatever I wanted. I, it was my farm. I could farm it however I wanted, all my decisions all the time. And I made some huge mistakes, <laughs> mistakes that took years to correct. And, mm. of course... They were mistakes he would not have made. They, they were the things that I rushed to do as soon as I had the independence. And damn, <laughs> it, it, it was challenging. And I had this moment in my head where I was like, okay, without the checks and balances of this other human in my life who could look at me and witness me and go, hey, you know, that's always been your greatest weakness, right? You might want to stop and think about that. I actually would, in my head, say, what would Chet do? You know, what would Chet do? How would he do this differently? And I found myself, like, going back and really reconnecting with his, his logic grid, uh, his, his way of behaving, the things that were his uh, pet peeves, and really asking myself, are you sure this is how you want to do it? Because, you know, if Chet was here, and as a result, I think I, uh, I became wiser in my approach to everyday living because uh, I had this internal sense of checks and balances that were residual gift of the relationship. You know, obviously age is uh, wisdom. We're, we're getting wiser as, as we ha- have the vast experience of all our mistakes. I feel today fortunate for everything that I've been through. The loss of Chet, the experience of his death, and those seven years of fighting against it, Mm -hmm. farming the way I wanted to farm, really having everything my way, Mm -hmm. I I, I learned a lot about Mm -hmm. my own weaknesses 
as a person and also the value of having a different perspective, even when it's uh, a disagreement. Mm -hmm. I think I benefited from all that hugely. I think that's so interesting, Billy, because uh, when John was alive, as well as now, one of my jokes was, what would John do? And I would ask that because he was so deeply devoted to setting himself aside and taking who was in front of him in so deeply to be able to really understand their come from, to be able to understand why they were saying and doing what they were doing, regardless of how it might trigger him. He would set that aside. And Mm -hmm. so I found that to be such an amazing practice of course, our intimate partners, we're very dedicated teachers for each other in, in the ways that we bring forth the edges that we have, our growth edges. When we live alone, we can experience ourselves as perfect. But when we live with another, we see all the ways that we, that we have to grow. And I also find that it's very important for me in all of my relationships and friendships that it's okay for those that I'm with that I talk about, John because he'll be with me for the rest of my life. So even if I, I won't say if, when I end up in, a, in another primary relationship, um, that will be a part of the relationship. Not, not that the other person is going to uh, feel second in second place, but that they can be comfortable embracing that this man had a huge impact on who I am and that we can celebrate that together so thank you Kath um Billy in your blog you had mentioned um about feeling like you had lowered in caste when you became a widow that there was this now label that you're and people were relating to you differently and can you all comment on your experience around that I didn't you know want to be a widow I didn't like that word go back through literature and where do you you have this uh old woman in a black dress who everybody either kind of shuns or uh, they're obligated to care for or she's the town crank or you know it's not a it's not historically an idealized role I looked at it in the history of other cultures and saw how in most cultures, widows are disparaged and disadvantaged and socially discarded. I felt the kindness of my friends, but I also felt this pity that felt just awful mm-hmm. among my family members, also especially his family. Totally expected that I would immediately shed the possessions, sell the farm, downsize, move into a little condo somewhere and just volunteer at the hospital. I mean, there, there was really this sense that, like, my life was kind of over. Um, I didn't uh, have any friends, okay, who were widows. And my social circle was all couples. And all of a sudden, I was the seventh chair. I had a feeling of being excluded from events and situations that were more couples-oriented. And so I had this sense of, think of it as circles. I am the center of my circle, that dot in the center. The next ring out was my husband. 
It's these concentric circles of relationship, but at the center, that dot in the center is me, mm -hmm. and that is always there, but the next spring out was him. He, he was the thing that I loved the most and cared the most about in life, and when that when he was gone, that that next that next circle was just empty. Mm -hmm. It wasn't like something came in to replace it. And I'm more isolated and alone and than I ever was. Now we could talk about all the good things that come with that. The independence, the freedom, the self-expression, the first priority that um, you know, I look at what Judith is doing with her um public art form, you know, mm -hmm. to identify with the ways in which she has made her art and her self-expression with her at the center, something really beautiful. And honestly, I think that's what I was doing with the farm. So yeah, so Judith, how do you feel about being a widow? I think that my blog was such uh, an important part of my life that, and then the ability to talk about what was happening, it was kind of like journaling, but in a very public way. And uh, one of the most unexpected fringe benefits of blogging was this community that I discovered across the world, uh, similar interests and um, it does, I, it's not that I met a lot of widows. Um, I didn't, but I I received so much support from people from all over the world so that when I would travel, no matter where I went, there was a blogger or an Instagrammer or a milliner because I'm so much into headwear and I had a hat shop in the 80s. So, um, I, and Nelson and I didn't have a lot of couple friends, so I didn't have, I'm sure the the experience that you described was a painful experience. Um, uh, my relationships changed, but I, I wasn't in the situation where I was uh, with a group of couples and I was the only person that didn't have a partner. I think that what has one of the major um, evolutions of my relationship with Nelson is continuing to curious about issues of race in our country and continuing to read and be part of um, book groups online around white privilege. And uh, I just read a book that just, it's almost like it rearranged some of what my relationship with Nelson was about. I don't know if you've heard about the book Cast. Um, yeah. Isabel Wilkerson. It is one of the very best books I have read, just period, absolute, even over and above uh, a book on any topic, and rearranged my thinking around the caste system in our country, which um, she did research around how it is similar to India and their caste system and how it is similar to what happened in Nazi Germany, which was a 12-year space of time. But here in this country, it continues. So it may seem like I'm on a different topic, but having been married to a man who was African-American does not mean that I don't have white privilege and it is something that I need to work on and deal with and be aware of for the rest of my life. Um, that's just because of 
our system of white supremacy mm -hmm. that we live and how grateful I am to him for the lives that we had together and what I learned there and what I'm continuing to learn. Yeah. Wow. And then Kat, for you in this question, I mean, the emotions are still so raw. You're probably still embroiled in the middle. I am a very fast metabolizer of everything, of food, of experiences. My totem animal is a hummingbird, and so it just kind of gives you a sense. I'm, I'm very fluid and mercurial in a sense. And also, I think because I was with John 10 years, you all were with your husband's 30-plus years, it's a different level. And it's not that the connection with John was less mm -hmm. profound and less life-changing, but I think just by my nature and by the fact of how much change I have embraced in my life always, I think my sense of being a widow feels quite different. Both, I think, Judith, because like you, many of my friends are either single themselves or um, I don't experience being a third wheel, particularly with my friends who are couples. Um, I experienced just sort of being um, an enhancement of their situation when I'm with them. Uh, I also feel very strongly that death is a portal to love. And when I hear you, Judith, talking about reading this book and how deeply, more deeply it even connects you to your partner who has passed and also, when I hear you, Billy, talking about, you know, saying, what would Chet do? What would he think? You know, this is what I mean by it, is that through death, and I've experienced this maybe even more profoundly with my mom, but I'm able to see and love and appreciate the qualities of each of my beloveds who are now on the other side in a way that I might not have been able to fully embrace when they were with me because... There's the human ego um, interference or irritation or frustration that comes up. But now it's just a, sort of a direct channel to the gifts that John brought to my life. I really am a much better, nicer, gentler person than before I was with him. And um, I just... Yeah, I don't really even think of the term widow, although I've had to use it a couple of times, you know, when I've been filling out forms, like, oh, right, I am a widow. Mm. <laughs> yeah. I, I have a question, actually, for, for um, you guys, because I still dream about Chet. It's been 11 years. I never stopped dreaming about Chad. And in my dreams, very often, it's, uh, it's not exotic. It feels real. It feels like a real communication that he and I might have had if he had not died. In my dreams sometimes, we're in situations uh, that feel like situations we we may have very well found ourselves in. I mean, it just, uh, it doesn't feel like trippy, like, uh, um, like swirling surrealism. When Chet pops into my mind, he feels like Chet, and we are in relationship, and 
frequently in my dreams, we have disagreements as we did in life. And he makes cracks as he did in life. And so I'm curious to ask you guys, if your husbands are part of your subconscious in the respect that you feel like through dreams or daydreaming or whatever, it, your, um, your relationship is ex- like extended into new realms. I definitely continue to have dreams. Uh, the most recent was, I don't know, maybe uh, a week and a half ago. But And uh, the dreams that I remember tend to happen just before I wake up or part of waking up. I don't know if that is true for you or both of you. Um, but the last dream was I went through the experience of Nelson's death about five times. And it was... It was very difficult, and I was so sad. But it felt real and leg- legitimate. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I keep looking forward to having a more complete dream in, that John is in. Um, I've had those with other family members who have passed. And the dreams I've had so far with John, I see his hands. I'll turn, I'm sitting at a table, and I'll turn, and I'll see his midsection. I remember thinking in that dream, oh, you're still so nice and trim. You know, it was seeing him, like, from the chest down. But I haven't seen his face in any dream yet, which is really interesting. Uh, I, I do have a love for the dream life. So I'm just, every night I go to sleep, and I say, honey, come on. Come on in. I'm I'm open. I'm welcoming you into my dreams. So I'm I'm just still looking forward to that. But definitely during my waking life, I feel a strong sense of connection. Yeah, I had heard once um, that it, some spirits it can take them. They have to practice coming into dreams. And my grandfather, it was um, he would come, but he couldn't speak. And then he would speak a couple words, and then finally he was fluent. It was like he was trying to practice crossing that divide. Yeah, interesting. If you all were to give advice to someone who has lost someone or that is currently in the process of ushering someone into death, what would you say to them? I think there's some really good books to read that were very helpful for John and I. We both read Die Wise by Stephen Jenkinson. It's a profound book. It's really well-written, uh, pretty radical ideas about when it's time to turn towards living your dying and how to do that in a way that really honors your integrity as a human being. Having a really strong, solid, loving support system, whether that's girlfriends, children, whoever it is, Uh, And certainly there's a lot of professionals out there who are making this kind of work front and center. But just the support system so that you, A, are still physically taking good care of yourself and B, are, are really able to explore. I mean, there's a lot of emotions that come along with this. You know, I can remember just feeling so angry about during the four and a half years I was helping John we went to 
clinics in Germany. I, I can't even tell you the number of alternative treatments that I did for this man over the four and a half years prior to his last three months of life. I learned to do IVs, being the most needle phobic person I've ever known. So, you know, what you can overcome and what you can learn to do is remarkable. But there were times when I was really pissed that this is this is my life. Like, I can't go to dance now and I can't do this and I can't do that because I have to keep this schedule of treatments going. And just to be able to have the capacity to be real and to say, this isn't what I signed up for. I don't want to lose this person. It's it's grief is is the interweaving of so many emotions. It's not just sorrow. Mm-hmm. And so the, to have that kind of support, I think, is is crucial. And to be fearless into diving into it and let yourself do it, swim in it, be awash with it, and uh, move it through your body. Don't don't just stuff it under the bed. Yeah. Whatever shows up. And whatever shows up. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I totally agree with that. I, I feel like taking care of myself was the most important um, activity during the time that Nelson was sick and dying because I've read so many times that the caregiver sometimes dies before the designated. And I remember reading that anything I would feel or think is totally okay and not to judge it. It doesn't mean a bad person. There were two factors that were helpful that I can remember off the top of my head, and one was finding the cancer guide that gave me so much support. And he was difficult to get a hold of, but whenever I really needed to talk to him, for some magical reason, he was available. Um, Hmm. And the other was natural transitions because... Um, that organization went over every possible scenario about the end of life and allowed Nelson and I to have conversations that we wouldn't have had otherwise because it was really death as a stage of life as opposed to, um, I don't feel like uh, hospice was even, I mean, hospice was wonderful, but to have someone that was talking about death as a part of human experiences and that it was okay to talk about anything between Nelson and I so that then we ended up talking about death every day. It wasn't a taboo subject through the last months of his life. Yeah, our culture, for some reason, we have this very dysfunctional relationship with death, and we don't even know how, like you were pointing out, Judith, how to even have conversations. We don't have a language around death. So that's beautiful. I love that. Thank you. I agree. My sentiments are the same as as yours, both of you, Kat and Judith. I I feel like uh, death is a natural life process that uh, is uh, analogous to birth and that when we see it as coming full circle and a union of ourselves, that uh, it's a much more celebratory moment, and that it is a natural transition, and we all face it. And the more we uh, embrace the experience, the more wholesome and healthy it becomes, not just for the dying person, but for everyone else, uh, and particularly the caregivers. I think 
I began that journey with my husband completely resisting it, fighting it. As both of you have described, you went through the alternative treatments, right? The system wasn't going to help you with this. Chemotherapy seemed as bad as the disease itself. We were looking for answers that we couldn't find in traditional medicine. And we went way out there trying to solve this problem ourselves. But the core of that was really resistance. We did not want this happened and of course I never wanted it to happen all the way to the end I was I was that's where the anger comes from right Mm -hmm. but there was a point at which Chet said you know uh, this is easy for me all I have to do is lay here and die the hard part is what you have to do Mm -hmm. you have to go on living and so don't worry about me I'm fine I'm fine. You know, I, I've got this. You know, you need to focus on yourself, take care of yourself. And I think we as caregivers don't hear that enough and we don't appreciate and respect enough the, um, deleterious effects of caregiving. It's exhausting. Grief is exhausting. I think grief is a process And we all go through it differently. But one thing I've discovered is that it's always there inside me. And if I wanted to have a conversation with you right now that could make me cry, I could do that. I Probably all three of us could. We could touch on an element of our experience that just takes us down into tears. And, hey, I don't want to do that, but I can feel it right now just talking about it. It's there. It's forever. It is like a box of jewels that we keep inside ourselves, and they don't catch the light unless we open the box. And I'm good at compartmentalizing, so I, I, I try not to, I try not to go there. But the calendar goes there for me. The anniversaries come up, and I feel them in my bones. I feel that deep, profound sadness in my bones. It's been 11 years. The anniversary of my husband's death is January 16th. And you know, it has already occurred to me that that anniversary approaches. And I may look for ways to distract myself from it, but somehow inside me, my body knows. And so I... I won't ever deny it that that grief has a life of its own and I can choose to close the box and look away from it but it's always there and I respect it and appreciate it and I I have to admit that it has its own beauty mm. right I don't ever want it to go away yeah yeah but what you describe is so true and so when the anniversaries come up, it sounds like Billy and, and the other two can speak to, well, you're going through the first anniversaries, Kat. Um, how do you deal with that? Yeah, I think that I just, um, I've moved into a lot of tenderness about it and uh, allowing myself to feel what I feel in each moment and not push it away and not turn away from it. And I know for myself that my emotions are like the weather. Um, Stick around long enough and it's going to change. 
I, I definitely feel grateful for my constitutional enthusiasm and optimism about life. And so the grief hasn't dampened that. It actually feels like it's enhanced that and enriches that and creates a more saturated and stunning canvas and uh, upon which my life is unfolding because of the grief. Uh, I'm appreciating the depth that it's brought to my relationships mm-hmm. that I have. Okay. Well, thank you all very much. Is there anything else that we haven't touched on or that you want to say? Well, I just as a, a as a blogger and knowing that Kat writes on Medium and, and that Judith has a couple of different ways of communicating, um, I, I kind of like to just hear... Uh, um, well, I'll say it first. My name is Billy Vest, and my blog is called Beyond 60, uh, Loving Life, Staying Relevant. And uh, I blog about aging and my experience uh, as an elder woman. And, of course, um, being a widow and coping with all that entails is a big part of who I am, and so it's part of my blog. My name is Judith Boyd, and um, I, I'm Billy. I'm I'm glad that you thought of this because um, since my blog and my Instagram are so much a part of who I am, uh, and I I guess I'm um, I have more of an audience on Instagram than any other social media platform. Um, but I blog and Instagram as Style Crone, and uh, the reason that I chose. The word crone is because in um, matriarchal cultures in the past, the word crone was seen as positive and reflected the value that was placed on women that were older, such as myself. Now the definition is ugly old woman, and I want to turn it on its face and um, give it meaning and that um, we as older women have value even though our culture doesn't agree with that in the, in our youth-focused society. So um, I embrace the word crone just as I embracing my aging. Beautiful. And uh, you can find me on medium.com under my full name, Kat, which is spelled with a C, Kat Gilliam Cunningham. The writing that's on there now was all about my process with John and with my mom, and it was a way of processing the feelings that I was having. I love to write. I've been writing since I've been eight, and I've been inspired by uh, this whole process of death, and I guess death is now my muse. <laughs> and uh, I can, I will continue to write on Medium as this all unfolds for me. And... Uh, yeah, I, it's it's fun to be able to get feedback from people that the writing matters to them. It helps them with their process. Mm. So I appreciate the opportunity to do that. And thank you so much, Sharon, for inviting me to join these two real live wires that I've got. <laughs> You're all amazing women, amazing women. Thank you all so much. 
Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Billy, Kat, and Judith. And thank you for joining us at The Thing About Aging.